Our sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with, throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you for this precious word. We praise you for your spirit who inspired the men who wrote it. Praise you for your spirit who preserved it down through the ages. We pray now, Father, that this same spirit who inspired it and preserved it would guide it into our hearts. Help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to obey, and help us to give glory to you because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are many, many bad ideas and bad theology floating around the Christian world. I'm sure if I asked you to list a few, you could name a few yourself. Hey, here's a few. But perhaps one of the more destructive and pervasive ideas yet not so clear is that laboring for the kingdom, striving for a holy life is wrong. It is contradictory to your love for Jesus. In fact, there's this idea, even in the Reformed world, even in Reformed seminaries, that if you strive to live a holy life, that will make you a legalist. It will make you someone who does not love Jesus. It will make you someone who relies on your works instead of upon the grace of Christ. So this idea that the grace of Christ does not allow us to strive for holiness. That working to become more righteous actually destroys the grace of God, destroys our faith in Christ. And this is an absurd idea. Hopefully you can see that very quickly, but it is pervasive. And I know friends and family members, and again, seminary professors, who don't just talk about it, they teach it as fact. Okay? The scriptures are very clear from Adam and Eve before the fall to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob's struggles with the angel, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to Ezra and Nehemiah. The Bible is very clear that holiness, striving for righteousness, is not something that's antithetical to your love for God, it actually fuels your love for God. You do not love Jesus more or less when you obey. You love Jesus more when you obey. Obedience is necessary. It is foundational for the Christian life. It's not optional, not a suggestion, not a well, take it or leave it. It is who we must be. It is what we must do. And today in our text, there's this clear connection between our faith and our love for Jesus and our setting our hope on Jesus and our obedience to Jesus. These things are connected. They fuel one another. Okay, so that's the point I want to get across to you this morning. Okay, there's, there's the big, big thesis. You can write that down and go to sleep now. You're done. Okay, that's the big thesis. Okay, the big thesis is our obedience to the commands of Christ fuel our love for Jesus. They're not detrimental to our love for Jesus. Right, so here in our text, and I'm only going to get through verse 17. So the rest of the verses are going to have to wait until the next sermon 
I had to make a decision on Friday whether I wanted to preach one really long sermon or two really long sermons, and I decided to preach two really long sermons. Um, <laughs> so, and no, it got bigger and bigger and bigger as the week went on. I was like, well, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Okay, so we're going to get through the middle of 17, and then a couple weeks when I preach, we'll do the rest of the um, through 21 there. So there's two imperatives in our text, two main imperatives. An imperative is a command. Okay, there's indicatives and there are imperatives. An indicative is, this is how things are. This is a pulpit. That's an indicative. Okay, command is, come up to the pulpit. That's in the command. Okay, so there's indicatives and imperatives. Up to this point, Peter has just given us indicatives. There's been no commands through the first 12, chap- first 12 verses. No commands, all indicatives. Now, we can apply it. It doesn't mean we can't apply it, but it's all been what is, not what we're supposed to do. Now he comes with two specific imperatives. And it's not the first phrase. You might think, oh, well, the imperative is gird up the loins of your mind. No. The first imperative, the main imperative, okay, is rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? This is the very first imperative, the first command. And those other two phrases, which in our English Bible are first, are kind of like baby commands, okay? They come underneath this, tell us how we're supposed to do this, okay? So Peter's theme in this epistle is how we are to suffer righteously, okay? The book is... Filled with people suffering. You got wives who are married to unchristian husbands. You got uh, slaves who have harsh masters. You got a government who's persecuting them. How do we live righteous lives in the midst of slander, lies, and persecution so that we reach this final state, this final glorious inheritance, which he's been talking about in the first 12 verses? Okay? And he says the way we do this is we set our hope fully on Jesus Christ. Some of your translations might say firmly on Jesus Christ, and that grace that is to be brought to us at that point, okay? And it's hard to beat here the image of a wedding day, okay? If you think about a wedding, again, this is all throughout the Bible, but that wedding day, if you're getting ready to get married, there's, it kind of dominates everything you do. It's all you think about. Even if you're at work, your wedding kind of sits in the back of your mind. You mark it on your calendar. Ladies probably put like flowers all around. Here's my wedding day. Guys probably put, yeehaw, excited, okay? The guys are excited. So this is it, it permeates our lives. It permeates our lives. It's the day that we're looking forward to. This is the picture Peter wants us to have. This coming day of salvation that Jesus Christ is going to bring needs to be fixed in our minds. It needs to be anchored. Our minds need to be anchored to that day. We need to orbit around that day. So in a sense, the future presses back into the present. The future shapes our present. Okay? Peter wants our minds fixed on this ultimate destination. Okay, that doesn't mean we're so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. In fact, we're finding out it's exactly the opposite. Fixing our minds on heaven, fixing our minds on Jesus makes us very good here on earth, makes us very helpful and good and sound here on earth. Okay? Peter's telling us to put all our eggs in this one basket. Okay, our whole life is to be tied to Christ and the glory that is to come. There should be a firm resolve that the day of Christ trumps everything else. Okay? Everything else. And this is how we endure persecution. This is how we hang on. Okay, when you're going through difficult times is remembering that day. Those basic principles were to be people living in light of eternity. Okay, that is how we properly endure hardship and suffering. How do we do this, Peter? How do we set our minds firmly, fix our minds firmly on that day? Now, our thought might be we think about a lot. We think about that final day a lot. Okay? Well, I don't think Peter's saying don't do that, okay? but he gives us four things in this text that we are to do to set our hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to us at Jesus Christ. Four things. And the first is we are to be prepared for action. Prepared for action. Okay? Gird up the loins of your mind. And many of you are familiar with this particular 
phrase, if you're a lady and you've had to run around in a dress, you know, you know how difficult it is to move quickly when you've got a dress down to your ankles and it's kind of like snug, okay? Same thing here, the men had robes and it was difficult to move. And so what did they do? They girded up the loins of their robe. They girded up their robes and made them prepared for action. It made them ready, okay? Job 38.3, God says to Job, Job, gird up your loins like a man. Come and meet me. Okay, so this is the idea. Come, ready. are you ready, Job, to meet me? Get ready, because I'm about to tell you something. Okay, Proverbs 31.17, talking about the wise woman. She girds herself with strength. She prepares for battle with strength. Okay, that's what she does. And the idea is that every impediment, every obstacle to us running this race faithfully needs to be set aside. Okay, anything that prevents us from running the race faithfully needs to be set aside. Hebrews has a very similar sort of image where it says, set aside everything that entangles you. Everything that entangles you needs to be set aside. So the first thing I want to say about this before we get to actual preparation is that the Christian life is one of action. It is one of movement. The Christian life is not one of passivity. Okay, and that's the picture here. It's not passivity, it's action. You're ready for something. And if you think about the pictures in the Bible of the Christian life, let's just review some of these. And you'll see that this is not sipping tea on the veranda. That's not what we do as Christians. We're not out back, you know, just sipping tea, and here we go. No, we are, our life is to be active. Okay? So listen to some of the images. You guys are familiar with these. Ephesians, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We are wrestling. Okay? Some of you have wrestled. Some of you are wrestling now and wrestling now. You know what that's like. That is not a passive activity. You can't just sit there and hope it works out. You have to engage. You have to fight. You have to wrestle. Paul says, take every thought captive. That's a picture of conquering. It's a picture of an army coming in and conquering something. Paul talks about boxing his body, buffeting his body, and making it his slave. Paul talks about fighting the good fight. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're like a man who's going to build a tower. Okay? You need to think about it beforehand. You're like a king who's going out to battle. You need to think about it beforehand. Okay? Those are not passive activities. Paul, there's a plowing imagery and the reaping imagery is all throughout the Bible. We're plowing, we're reaping, we're harvesting. Again, not an easy thing to do. Even today, with tractors and machines, reaping and harvesting is not easy. It's hot, hard work. Peter says in just a few verses, he will say, there are lusts which wage war on the soul. There are lusts which wage war on the soul. There is somebody trying to destroy you. There's an army that's going to attack you every single day. Are your mind, is your mind ready? Are you prepared for that? Peter later says that Satan is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And we go on and on. I'm sure you can think of images in your own mind. The point is the Christian life is not one of passivity. And this is Peter's point. If you're going to set your hope fully on Jesus Christ, you have to be ready to fight. You have to be ready to run the race. Okay? I did not play football until I was in 10th grade. Okay? And a lot, when I got in 10th grade... A lot of the guys were way better than I was um, because they'd been playing since they were like, you know, really small, really small. I'm not playing it. Well, my first practice, I remember this very distinctly. First practice, coach hands me one of these big, tall cushion things and this tackling dummy, basically. I put it on and he says, stand there. And there's this big, you know, big 260-pound guy that's going to run into him. I'm like, okay, this should be fine. He runs and just plows me over. Boom, just runs me right over. Like, Well, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't braced. I wasn't ready. Next time, he hit me and I went back a little bit, but not as far. I was braced. I was ready. And that's the picture of the Christian life. We have to be braced. Now, not just defensive. We're attacking as well, okay? But the point here is Peter's making is you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready 
prepared for the work, prepared for the race, prepared for the battle. Okay? And that begins in worship. Sunday mornings, you come in here. God is getting you ready for the week. Something's going to happen in here. You're going to be told something. You're going to visit with a friend. You're going to hear a prayer. You're going to hear him. And that's going to be one of the ways God prepares you for the week. Are you paying attention? Are you taking it in? It's not a law, but I do think reading your Bible first thing in the morning is a wise way to gird your mind. It's a wise way. If you can get it in, even just a little bit, read a little bit of a psalm. Pray just a little bit before you start your day. Get your mind fixed and ready for the battle ahead. Because okay? guess what? Satan's ready. Okay? Your flesh is ready to fight. Memorize scripture. is another great way to prepare your mind. You don't know what's going to be thrown at you. You don't know the exact battle you're going to have to have. Have scripture, like, like a bunch of bullets in your gun. Have scripture memorized so when somebody, something comes at you, have a way to fight back against it. Okay? What are those habits of your mind or your body that prevent you from advancing in your walk with Christ? And how can you get ready for the battle that's ahead of you? Okay? Get ready for your day. And this is what Peter's saying. Get prepared. Get ready. That's the first thing. Second, he says is be sober. Be sober. A sober-minded man is someone who sees the world accurately. He reacts appropriately to the situation. There's an old word for it called temperance. Okay, now we think of temperance, we think of crinkled old ladies in the late 1800s who didn't want anybody to drink alcohol, okay? Temperance means moderation. It means moderation, okay? It means reacting appropriately to a situation. Not overreacting, not underreacting. And this is a drunk person is kind of like a child. You know, a child overreacts to things that are small and underreacts to things that are big. This is what a drunk person does. Have you ever been around drunks? This is what they're like, okay? I remember, I don't know why I grew up around so many drunks. It wasn't my family, but we lived on a, <laughs> on a gravel road in Mississippi, and there were drunks everywhere. I, I, I don't want to make it that. But anyway, a good friend of mine had a grandfather who would sit out on his porch swing every Saturday night, and he would, there was a window, and he'd watch Hee Haw. I don't know if you guys remember that show, but he'd watch Hee Haw through the window, and he'd have all these quarts of old Milwaukee, and he would just drink himself into a stupor. And then we'd drive by for church on Sunday morning, he'd be laying Face down, face down on the porch, just out, passed out. Okay? That's what drunkenness do, does to you, but that's what spiritual drunkenness does to you as well. That's what the world, being drunk on the world, will do you as well. How many people have we seen face plant in their spiritual lives because they got drunk on something from the world? Okay? A drunk does not see the world correctly. Their reaction time is wrong. They're foggy. Okay? And this is what Satan likes to do. He likes to make us foggy. We don't think about it to Adam and Eve. What did he say? He just put it down there, my well. Maybe you won't die. At least not like God says. Oh, huh. Another step. Here we go. They're drinking. Okay, they're drinking from Satan. A sober-minded man sees things clearly. It means he looks back to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. All those things in the creed dominate his life because those are the great truths. Those are the things that matter. Baptism, communion of saints, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, those are the things that matter, okay? A drunk man doesn't, okay? A spiritually drunk man, those things are kind of in the back. He might know them, but they're in the back, okay? They're in the back. A sober-minded man does not trust his own heart. Pastor Garner talked about this last week. Our heart lies to us. A sober-minded man does not trust his own heart. He trusts God's word. He's not looking there going, what, what is my heart telling me? What do I feel like doing today? No. What does God want me to do today? What does God want me to do? A sober-minded man knows that we're in a battle, that we're in a race, that we're in a fight. That's what he knows. He knows the nature of the situation. And I do think a lot of Christians 
do not even understand or think about their lives in terms of a race, a battle, a wrestling. They don't even think about it in those kind of, that kind of terminology. But when you think about how the Bible describes the Christian life, that's almost all it describes it as. It never really describes the Christian life as you just sitting back, drinking a beer, watching TV. And that's not how the Christian life is described. It's described as active and almost violent. I mean, the Gospels say violent men take it by force. Okay, so a sober man understands this. He understands that, okay? So what currently in your life are you drunk on that keeps you from following after Christ, that keeps you from hanging on to Jesus, having your hope fully set upon Jesus Christ? What is it? Okay, let me mention a few things that we can be drunk on, uh, spiritually drunk on, and keeps us from being sober. One is pride, okay? You can watch videos of drunk guys on YouTube who are all trying to do things they should not be doing because they're not good enough. Jumping from things that are way too high. The funniest one's always when they're trying to jump over something that's way too high and they can't get over it. Drunk people have this inflated sense of how good they are. You know, they'll talk to you, well, if I just had a shot, I would be an NFL quarterback. I would be an NFL quarterback. You know? and, then they, and when they're drunk, they're always, I don't, again, <laughs> I was around maybe way too many drunk people when I was younger, but they all have this inflated sense of how great they are. I'm the best. I'm the best. You know? Remember, they, let's go shoot basketball. I'm so great. You know, and they're terrible. Okay? Well, in the Christian life, Pride gets us that way. Pride gets us that way. We think too much of ourselves. Think too much of our, of our own abilities. Do you understand your own weaknesses? A sober-minded man will. Do you know where your, where your faults are, where your temptations are? Do you know what situations, when you go in there, you're going to be tempted to do something you shouldn't, okay? Tempted to say something you shouldn't, okay? A sober-minded man understands himself, okay? Under man, under, understands himself, all right? Sober-minded man does not have a love of money. Okay? Does not have a love of money. Money and things, we love our things. We love our stuff. That's good in a good way, in a good, healthy Christian way. We push that here at Christ Church. But there can be a covetousness that creeps into our soul where we always want more stuff. We always want more things. Not ever really happy. Never really content. And that covetousness is like a drunkenness. It causes you not to see things correctly. It causes you to make bad decisions. Okay. Porn. Porn will destroy you. Okay? You cannot be a sober-minded man if you're addicted to pornography. That's just the bottom line on that. You know, if that's an issue, you should talk to somebody. It is not, and it's so pervasive in our culture, so dominant in our culture, I'd be foolish not to mention it. Okay? You cannot be a sober-minded man if you are addicted to pornography. That is a guarantee. You, will not, you are not saying things correctly. Okay? That's a guarantee. Bitterness. Bitterness. A sober-minded man is not bitter. We've run into the bitter people. You probably run into them. I know I do all the time on the internet. Um, <laughs> I run into bitter people who are angry and they're mad and their whole world revolves around this thing that happened to them and everything, that thing that happened bleeds into everything and colors everything. Okay? They're drunk on that bitterness and they can't see correctly. Okay? If you are bitter and angry at somebody or at God, you are not going to be sober-minded. You're not going to be ready for the fight. Okay? So then you can probably think of other things there as well. But Peter's saying, if you're going to rest your hope fully on Jesus Christ and that grace that's to be wrought at the revelation of him, then you have to be prepared and you have to be sober. You have to gird up the loins of your mind and you have to be sober, okay? Next, Peter tells us that if we're separate, set our hope fully on Christ, we have to lead holy lives. So he says this, verse 14 through 17, or 16, sorry. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. 
The sober-minded man understands that the world is always trying to conform you to it. There's always this pressure to conform, trying to mold you. Evil men want you to think like them. They want you to love the things they love. They want you to hate the things God loves. And there is always this pressure. And of course, with the advent of media, all the media we have, internet, television, radio, all that, the pressure just becomes greater. Okay, so we live in an age where there's this constant pressure to conform. Peter says, do not conform yourselves to the former lust. Do not let the world conform you to its mold. Okay, do not let the world conform. And there's numerous ways this happens. Again, I'm just give some examples here. Androgyny is a good one. Okay? Our world is a very androgynous world where they take men and women, they're like, they're just basically interchangeable parts. Men and women are interchangeable. Men, women can all do the same things. And there's no particular glory to a woman. There's no particular glory to a man. It's all interchangeable. Okay? So next time you see a 120-pound girl beating up a 250-pound man on the screen, and you say to yourself, that's a lie. They're trying to conform me to this idea that men and women are equal, that they're all the same, that it's all going to be fine. It's an obliteration of God's created order. And this might be, this is certainly one of the greatest pressures that is put on in our age today, is the obliteration of God's created order. Transgenderism is just, uh, just downstream from this idea, okay, just downstream from it. So that pressure is going to be there all the time, especially for young kids. You don't want to look stupid. You don't want to look dumb. You don't want to look like a misogynist, so on and so forth. So you kind of walk back, you conform a bit. And Peter's saying, don't, don't conform. Another example of conforming is just consumerism. Okay? Just consumerism, I mentioned it earlier already. Our world is built on, they want you to buy stuff. They want you to buy stuff. How many of us have been, well, had an internet ad run across or radio ad, and thought, wow, I never knew I needed that. <laughs> and the answer is you didn't need it until that showed up. And now you do, because they are, they are producing covetousness in your soul. So you will conform to this consumer mentality. And if you have a consumer mentality, you will not survive persecution. If your mindset is, I am a consumer and I'm trying to make myself happy, you will not survive persecution. And the world is certainly trying to conform you to that. And it doesn't matter what age you are. I think we tend to believe that this pressure is primarily something the young feel. Certainly young men and women have a lot of pressure put on them. But it's not like Satan says, well, he's getting Social Security. I guess I got to give up. You know, it's over now. He reached 50. He won. It doesn't work that way. Satan keeps attacking 50, 55, 60, 65. He keeps trying to conform you to this image of the world. Treat keeps trying to do that. In one way, I'll just give you one example for you older people in the, in the congregation, is the idea that your old age should be a time of rest and relaxation, and that's it. Okay, That's the idea. When you, when you get to be 65, my job's done. I'm going to go sit on the beach and drink margarita and everything will be good. Okay? Everything will be good. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach that. This girding up the ones of your mind is not just for people 49 and under. Okay? It's for everyone. This being sober is for everyone. This putting off lust and putting on holiness, we'll talk about in a minute, is for everyone. You don't get out of the battle until you're dead. You don't stop running the race until you're dead. That's how it works, okay? So for you older people, don't bow out of it. Keep fighting. Obviously, you can't do everything you did at 25 or 45, but you have things that are good for the battle. You have things you, that you contribute to the well-being of the body, okay? So don't step out of it. A great example of this is Caleb, the story of Caleb in Numbers and Joshua. 
Caleb was one of the 12 spies. He was one of the two guys who wanted to take the promised land with Joshua. He wanted to go take the promised land, but he ended up wandering around the wilderness. Well, they get to the promised land, and there's this plot of land that's really, really hard to get. Hilly, difficult, full of bad guys, difficult land to conquer. Caleb, at 80 years old, says, you know what? I want that land. I want that land right there. That's what I want. I'm going to go take that land right there. Okay? That's, that's the mindset the older people in the congregation need to have. There's hard work to be done. I want to do it. And obviously, physically, you can't do everything you can do when you're younger. That's fine. But don't step out of the battle just because you're older. Okay? But Satan isn't. Satan isn't stopping just because you're older. Okay? You need to keep running the race and keep being faithful all the way to the end. Okay? Keep fighting all the way to the end. So do not conform yourself to your former lust. Be like God. Conform yourself. Be holy as God is holy. So these are basically two sides of the exact same coin. Okay, two sides of the exact same point. We are to look like our Father in heaven. We're to look like God. Our conduct is to imitate him, not imitate the world. Okay? And the primary way we do this is by knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus from the Bible. Okay? If you want to know what God looks like, Jesus says, he's seen me, has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, read about Jesus. If you want to know how, how God thinks, read about Jesus. Okay? That's where you figure out how who God is. Okay? So you cannot, let me say this real plainly, you cannot do what Peter's talking about here, be holy in your conduct if you don't know your Bible. It's an impossibility. You can't do that. The second thing that's key for your holiness is being around other godly people. Who is influencing you? We are imitators. Who is influencing you? Who are you listening to? Okay? Who are your closest friends? At work, how do you act around your coworkers? Are your coworkers influencing you to think certain ways and to act certain ways? Your non-Christian coworkers or even your kind of nominally Christian coworkers. Who we are influenced by will ultimately determine how well we conform to God or how well we conform to the world. Okay? And there's all sorts of way input coming in from different areas and you know, podcasts and videos and things like that. But you have to ask yourself, who is pushing me? Who am I following? Okay? Who am I listening to? If the answer is not good people, people who don't love Jesus, people who aren't holy, then guess what? You're going to look like them. Okay? You can't hang out with fools and not become foolish. You can't listen to fools all day on their podcast and not become foolish. That's how it works. That's how it works. So we're to be conforming, not conforming to the world and conforming our conduct to God. We're to look like God. Okay? Look like God. And then Peter sums it all up. He sums it all up in verse 17. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 17 in a couple weeks, but I just want to, the last phrase is the one I want to focus on. If you call on Father, and Peter's like, yes, you do. The idea here is if you call on the Father, and you do, who without partiality judges according to each one's conduct, each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Okay? In fear. And this is our second imperative. Remember, I said there's two main imperatives. This is our second imperative. First one is set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. The second one is conduct yourselves with fear. And these are synonyms. I think Peter is saying the same thing in two different ways. He's saying, if you set your hope fully on Jesus Christ, guess what your life will look like? It will look like a life of someone who fears God, who fears God. Okay? He's restating the idea. So again, here what we see is obedience and faith are connected to one another. Okay? Fear of the Lord used to be kind of common currency. I remember when I was in Growing up, men came up to me. I 
think it was an officer in the church, come to me one time. I was young, probably six, seven, eight, somewhere. He's like, Peter, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? And he meant it. And it was a good word. It was a good question. Do I fear the Lord? And what he meant is, are you really saved? That's what he's asking me. Okay, I'm not sure that's the best way to go about it. But do, do you fear the Lord? That used to be a way we asked people, are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Okay? The fear of the Lord is, is this huge thing for us. It was a huge thing in the church for a long time. Now we don't think about God that way, but we should, okay? Peter says later on, verse 17 in chapter 2, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, okay? When Abraham gets ready to kill Isaac, and God says, stop, don't kill him, the Lord says, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your only son from me, okay? Now I know that you fear me. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is like the last verse, next last verse of the book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Okay? Psalm 112, 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. Notice the connection here, both in Ecclesiastes and Psalms, between fearing God and the commandments of God. And this is what Peter is saying. If you're going to hold tightly to Jesus, then you, life is going to reflect that. You're going to be obedient. Okay? The fear of God is a tricky sort of a thing for us to understand because we do not have very many examples of things we truly fear in this world like we should fear God. Okay? This isn't like the fear of drowning, okay? or the fear of getting a car wreck, or the fear of losing your savings account. It's not like that. The fear of the government. It's not like that. It's the fear of a father. It's the fear of a father. Okay? And again, He's one illustration from my life. He's a lot of my illustrations from my life today. But another one, my mom used to spank me. Um, I know that's hard to believe, but she did. She spanked me from time to time. But then occasionally my mom would say to me, well, Peter, I don't really want to deal with this. I'm going to have you go back to your room and you'll wait until your father gets home from work. And that was the worst. That was the worst. That was terrifying. But it wasn't like I was terrified of a thief or an assassin. It was my father, okay? And that's the picture that we should have. We had this idea that fear of God is just like this respect for God. Well, obviously it's there. There's this respect and this awe of God. But the rod of God is a motivating factor for a Christian. It's not outside of the equation, okay? The threats are part of the gospel. A Christian believes the threats of God, okay? He understands that God uses the rod to discipline and train his people, it is, not the ter- it is the terror of a father who loves us and rejoices over us, not the terror of an assassin or, some, or a thug. Okay? And those are two different types of fear. Okay? The best example I come up with this is Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay? So it's really, again, it's really hard for us to picture this. But in Aslan, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you read them all, if you know the stories pretty well, if you, ha- if you don't, you should. You should read them because there's a lot of insight into the Lord and to human nature in those books. But Aslan is a lion who is kind of fun in certain ways, okay? Like the children ride on his back. They put their hands in his mane. You know, they roll with him down the hills at times. There's all these cool things that happen with Aslan. He's, he's joyful, okay? He's joyful. He sings the world into existence. And the magician's nephew he sings it into existence. But there are times when Aslan has a growl. There are times when the kids are sitting there, and I can't remember the exact point in the story, but there's a point where all the kids are sitting there. One of the kids is thinking about saying something, and there's this low little growl that comes from Aslan. And the kid's like, no, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. That would be a bad move. That's our God. Okay? Yes, he rejoices over us with singing. 
Yes, he loves us. Yes, he's joyful over us, but he's got a growl and he's got teeth, okay? And that is what it means to fear the Lord, holding those two things in balance. And fathers, we are supposed to imitate this in our homes. And this is hard. All of us are woefully inadequate in this area, okay? But there's supposed to be a proper measure of gravity and fear and a proper measure of joy. And I feel like I'm just constantly like this as a dad, back and forth, but that's what we're supposed to do. Imitate our father. Imitate our father in joy and fear, in a sense. The fear, children fearing their father is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if it's done appropriately. Not being harsh or mean or cruel, but children, especially younger, as they get older, it changes, obviously. But when they're younger, there's to be a proper fear of the father. And as dads, we need to imitate God in this regard. There need, that needs to be there, okay? So what Peter is saying here, okay, what Peter is saying, the point of it is, you need to set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. Set your, put all your eggs in that basket. Trust in him, have faith in him, believe everything. And the way you do that is work. The way you do that is strenuous labor, okay? You prepare. You're sober-minded. You put off lust. You put on God. This is how we learn to love God more, okay? For some reason, we have a view of the Christian life that's different from other areas. If you want to be a good carpenter, you have to work at it. We all know this. You got to work at it, labor at it. You're going to make some mistakes. If you want to be good at coding or you want to be good at cooking or you want to be good at sewing or whatever it may be, you know it's going to require work. But for some reason, when it comes to being good at looking like Jesus, we're like, nope, can't work at that. That's legalism. <laughs> if you try real hard, guess what? You're not going to love Jesus in the end. You're going to love your works in the end. Peter's saying no. He's saying no. If we're going to cling to Jesus, put our hope in Jesus, rest fully upon Jesus, then our love, we will obey. Obedience is a way to that, okay? Obedience is a way to that. It should be a conscious, deliberate effort by us to lead righteous lives. That's what we're saying. It needs to be thought out. It needs to be considered. Not just like, well, I hope one day I look like Jesus. <laughs> it's like God saying, well, I hope one day I look like a carpenter. Well, if you don't work at it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right? Salvation is not a token you get that gets you into heaven. Okay? I think some of us view salvation like, oh, Here's your salvation token, and when you get to, the, to heaven, there'll be a turnstile, and you put it in, and then you go through. That's not how salvation is. Salvation is new life. You are dead. You are raised from the dead. You have been made kings and priests, sons and daughters. You've been adopted into a family. Growing the holiness means you become more like your father. You're a part of a priesthood. You have a mission. You have work to do. So we all want to set our hope fully on Christ, but a lot of us don't want to work to do it. And Peter's saying, it can't be that way. You have to labor, you have to work. And the cool thing is, as we grow in holiness, as we put off sin and learn to think properly about our world and follow after Jesus, as we obey, we will find that Christ becomes more precious to us, not less. It works exactly the opposite of the way these guys teach. The more you obey, the more we do put off sin and grow in holiness. The more we're not conformed to the world, the deeper our love for Jesus gets. Then when we are attacked and persecutions come and wickedness tries to destroy us, we will not leave the path because we're clinging to Jesus. We're obeying him. We're listening to him. We will hold fast to Christ through tribulation and persecution. And the way we do that is by obeying him. Okay? And that is the goal, to obey and hold fast. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful and thankful for your spirit. We pray that you would help us to obey be faithful to you. Keep us from 
any false ideas of what that means keep us from uh, lies of the devil, keep us from laziness, keep us from lethargy. Instead, help us to faithfully, cheerfully go about our business, obeying you, clinging to you. And show us, Lord, areas we need to work on, specific areas in each of our lives we can work on and grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.